I want to begin by offering my very, very favorite quotation, at least one of my top ten very favorite quotations. Listen to this great quote. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What a great quote. What a great declaration. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If that's true, and I certainly believe that it is true, quoting from the Bible, that means that salvation comes from God. But it also means if it belongs to Him, salvation is for Him to do with it whatever He wants to do with it. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is a declaration of God's sovereignty that He is free to do with that which is His whatever it is He wants to do with that which is His. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's a quotation from the the Old Testament book of Jonah, if you didn't know. And I'll invite you to turn to Jonah uh, as we talk about salvation belonging to the Lord. If you're looking for the book of Jonah, it's toward the end of the Bible or the end of the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew and just work your way back to the left just a little bit, there are some small books there at the end. And Jonah is one of those prophets there at the end. Some of you said, I'm eager, eager to have you get back into Matthew and studying Jesus and Jesus' ministry and Matthew's gospel account. Some of you said, I wish you'd keep talking about sovereignty. The latter group is more sovereign than the former group, I guess, because we're going to do sovereignty at least one more week. Uh, But we're going to do so from a place that we wouldn't normally think about when it comes to sovereignty. But I would propose to you that Jonah, while it might be about a lot of things, the book of Jonah is about the sovereignty of God. First time I ever read Jonah or it was read to me, I didn't think about the sovereignty of God, I'll confess. Who knows how old I was? And I probably read it years later, and then years later, and then years later, and I probably still wasn't thinking about the sovereignty of God. I don't think the book of Jonah's changed, (laughs) but I think I've changed. In fact, I know the book of Jonah hasn't changed, but I know I have changed. And if you're looking for it, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. Not only is God sovereign, free to do whatever he wants to do, and powerful enough to do it in salvation in Jonah... But he's sovereign everywhere, in all things in Jonah. It's absolutely amazing if you look for it where it is. Uh, Your homework assignment today, if you'd like a homework assignment, would be to read chapter 1 because we're not going to do that today. Uh, We're all familiar with um, the beginning, but you can read it and look for sovereignty. Pretty amazing. And then you can read chapter 4 because we're not going to read chapter 4 today during our time either. Look for sovereignty. It's all over the place in the book of Jonah. What we're going to do is focus on chapter 2 and chapter 3. Jonah being thrilled, excited, praising God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, seemingly in the next breath, bitter. I'd rather be dead than believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. It's really strange. I know and have met lots of Bible-believing Christians who when they think about God's great salvation in their life, they love it. They, they would love to say, salvation belongs to the Lord. He should be praised. He should be worshipped. And I say, good job. But I've also met plenty of quote-unquote Bible-believing Christians who when they start thinking about salvation belonging to the Lord and maybe the Lord showing His saving grace in the lives of people that they don't like, they're not so excited about it like Jonah. In fact, maybe even bitter. 
or if somehow God withholds, because salvation belongs to the Lord, if He withholds His salvation from someone, bitterness, anger, I'd rather be dead than to have a God act like this. Jonah, Jonah does both. And so what we're going to do is see Jonah thinking like a Christian, if you will, <laughs> praising God, and then we're going to see him acting worse than the unbelievers. Um, and so we're going to want to be like the, the first version, not 2.0, 1.0. And then when you read the rest of the book, we're not even sure where he ends. Even good Bible commentators say, did Jonah eventually fully embrace this? Maybe. Maybe not, based upon the way it ends. But I'm going to encourage you to have it end well. Uh, Thanks be to God, because salvation belongs to the Lord, even if He does with His salvation things that might surprise me. So, I hope you found Jonah by now. Let's dive in. Chapter 2, verse 1. But some Bibles split the paragraph differently, and so we're going to do that because I think it might help us if we go to chapter 1, verse 17. So, regardless of if your Bible splits the paragraph there or not, let's include 117 with chapter 2 and begin working on this. It says there, And the Lord appointed... I didn't get very far, did I? Well, I just want to keep stressing sovereignty, right? The Lord appointed... This is not, oh, and according to good luck or bad luck. It's just kind of how things go. No, here we go. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So sovereignty oh, even over the fish. For all of you fishermen, you should pray when you fish. Um, well, the, our fishing is probably a different scenario than this special occasion, but I digress. God is sovereign over the fish. He appoints this fish, and he appoints this fish to do what to Jonah? To save him. Save him from drowning. Sometimes I think the, the fish is the judgment. Well, actually, the fish is going to save him, which is kind of fascinating. It's also interesting that Jesus likens himself to the Jonah account in Matthew 12, I think it is. Uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the... I'm paraphrasing, the grave for three days. So as Jonah was saved by the fish, we're saved because of the work of Christ by the grave, if you will. So Jesus talks about this very account as true, accurate, and important. Thankfully, Jesus is not bitter about sovereignty like Jonah's about to be. Let's keep reading. I promise I'll go faster. Then, chapter 2, verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. That right there tells us he believes in God's sovereignty because he's asking for help. If he thought he was sovereign, he wouldn't need any help. Let's keep going. I can't resist. Saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol or the realm of the dead, the place of the dead. I cried and you heard my voice. Chapter 1, verse 14, the Gentiles are crying out now. Jonah's crying out for deliverance, and God hears his voice. And I don't think we're making too big a deal of it to say God sovereignly is going to choose to deliver Jonah. True or false, everyone who has ever named the name of God has always escaped physical danger. That's false, right? Again and again and again, people who who name the name of, of God and Yahweh suffer and die. God sovereignly 
answers his prayer in the positive. But he wouldn't have had to because God does what he wants to do. But that was the request and, and he's going to do the very thing he asked for. But if we're paying attention, this is sovereignty. This is sovereignty. God is going to, to answer in the positive physical deliverance. Then it says in verse 3, for you... How many times can I say sovereignty in one sermon? I don't know. Maybe somebody's keeping track. For you, by way of contrast, we're going to see, for you cast me into the deep. That's fascinating because in chapter 1, verse 15, it's the sailors who cast him in. So Jonah went to Bible college (laughs) until he didn't, as we're going to see. He at least started at a good Bible college. Maybe he transferred. I don't know. But he's, he's thinking the right way, right? They are the ones who cast him in. But he understands that God is behind everything and God is in charge. And so now the very thing that was done to him by human beings, Jonah says, you did this. Because he believes that God is in charge. He believes God is sovereign. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me, and your waves... God's waves, they belong to Him. He's the Creator Sovereign. Your waves and your billows, there it is again, passed over me. You're in charge of all of this. Then verse 4 says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. So he's hopeful. I'm going, to, I'm going to be back and be able to be in Jerusalem and I'm going to be able to, to worship you with the other people. He's, he's confident that that's going to happen. Exactly why, I don't know. But we keep reading in verse 5. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you... And we're going to connect some dots here to sovereignty. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay, look at verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And what I'm going to invite you to do is to make a connection between verse 6 You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. And verse 8, vain idols, people who regard vain idols. They don't really have any hope. That's sovereignty too. Who's sovereign when it comes to idol making? Think about it. The people who make the idols. Men and women who craft things out of metal, bronze, stone, wood. We're the sovereigns and we make idols and then we put our hope in them. And that's Lulu, right? That's crazy sauce. That's, it's, it's insane to do that. You're gonna, then you're going to pray to them? How, how foolish and crazy that is. You're the sovereign, not the things you make. They're yours. You can do with them whatever you want to do. How hopeless to pray to them. But notice the contrast when Jonah in verse 6 says, You brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He has his hope, his confidence, his trust in the God who is Yahweh, the one true and living God who is sovereign. What a contrast. I think Jonah went to Bible college. Or his 
parents did a good job and his grandparents did a good job teaching him the Bible. Or when he went to Shabbat school, um, he must have had the right flannel graphs in Shabbat school to understand God is sovereign over all things. He's in charge. He's in control. And you can trust in him and pray to him, not like those who pray to idols because that wouldn't even make sense. So far, so good. Nine says, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Devotion, gratitude, right? He's thankful. What I have vowed, I will pay. You're worthy. You're worthy of devotion and praise. And then we have our great line, Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is His. He gives it, and He gives it as He sees fit. What a great declaration. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is sovereign. God has done this for me. He should be praised. I should live my life as a life of gratitude unto Him because He has given me deliverance. And typically when we say salvation, we mean salvation from uh eternal condemnation, and that would be right in the way we typically think. Here it's temporal or temporary, but it's certainly an image of God being a delivering God, a saving God, a rescuing God, and he temporarily delivers Jonah from death, drowning. But what he's saying is true on both levels. If God is sovereign and the author and perfecter of the faith, to him belongs salvation. Then verse 10 says, And the Lord spoke to the fish. What a way to say that. Sovereignty. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Sovereignty of God. He appoints the fish. He tells the fish what to do. He's orchestrating, and he has the fish deliver him on dry land. How could that be? Such luck. (laughs) Jonah's about the sovereignty of God in charge and in control. Well, you look like you need a little levity, so here's my attempt at humor. One well-known preacher jokingly said that Jonah and the fish teaches us about debates between Calvinists and Arminians. Jonah represents Calvinism in saying, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the fish represents Arminianism. Given that upon hearing Jonah say salvation belongs to the Lord, he vomits him out. Well, I think Jonah wasn't quite a good enough Calvinist in the end, as we're about to see. Um, I thought it was funny. If you think it was funny, give me credit for it. If you think it was really stupid, I was quoting someone else. I've had more than one person tell me, keep your day job. You're not going to make it in comedy. So I'm I'm going to just try to keep that in mind. Now let's keep moving to chapter 3. The plot thickens. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. Nineveh, modern day Iraq. Nineveh, if Jonah's writing around 8th century, B.C., the Assyrians are arch-rivals, foes to the people of Israel. 
Think of people who have done evil against you and your people. Think of people that you would despise. Think of people that you would pray imprecatory psalms. Those are the psalms that say things like, Curse my enemies, O Lord God, for your namesake. It would be the Assyrians. It would be the people of Nineveh. These are arch-rival enemies who've done evil to people like Jonah and his beloved and who have opposed their God, okay? So Jonah, go there. Okay. Do you think if you're Jonah, you might like to do that? Kind of a trick question. Well, that depends. What do you want me to do? Right? Let's keep reading and see. I think he likes it at first and then maybe he doesn't like it. Verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I, t- I tell you. Again, sovereignty. I tell you. You don't go there and say whatever you want to say. You're not in charge. Um, don't say what you feel like saying. Um, you go and you tell them what I tell you because I'm God and Jonah knows that. And so he's going to go tell them what God says to them. And if you're Jonah, you might be thinking, <laughs> right? The sinister thing like this, this is going to be good. Maybe. I know God is sovereign and powerful. He delivered me from drowning. He can do extraordinary things. I wonder what God has up his sleeve for these bad actors. I'm speculating, but I want you to get the idea that he's been doing a good job so far in his thinking, at least in the text we've looked at. So Jonah, I wrote in my margin, having acknowledged that salvation belongs to the Lord. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. Jonah began, verse 4 says, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He probably likes that part. That's where I was getting that from. Right? In no time, you all are smoked. Right? Annihilated, wiped out. Then it says in verse 5, and the people of Nineveh, (laughs) we have to smirk and laugh and pause and, oh boy, and the people of Nineveh believe God. Now that's remarkable. It's remarkable in a lot of ways. It's remarkable because maybe that's not what Jonah was thinking was going to happen now. Maybe he thought otherwise. I don't know. But it's remarkable because we all know, according to Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. So we're not reading too much into it. When we hear the warning from Jonah and they respond positively and believe, we know that salvation belongs to the Lord. So if they're going to be saved, even if we're talking about temporary salvation, temporal salvation, physical salvation, they're going to be saved because that's how God wanted it to be, because salvation belongs to the Lord. And they hear the warning and they respond positively. I have to conclude God was working in the midst of the Ninevites. He's working, the, working in their lives. And if I'm somebody who wants to dictate how God's sovereign grace operates, I surely don't like this. And he's not going to like it, as we would know. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yeah. And they believe. Maybe one other aspect that's remarkable. There's nothing in our text that gives us the idea that Jonah shows up with 
massive armies. There's no sense that, that the reason they respond positively is because they can see the dust up on the horizon because here come the many, 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 many soldiers to come and defeat them. No, they've been warned by Jonah. They've been warned by Jonah and they respond positively. And the reason I'm emphasizing that is because it would be one thing if all of a sudden hundreds of thousands or however many are coming with military might, right? And they are like, hey, hey, we're, we're out. Here comes a guy named Jonah telling them this and they believe and repent as we're going to see. It tells me salvation is of the Lord. There, we, we have to explain this as something spiritual happens, something, something beyond fear of military might, I think happened. Well, yeah, God happened. Salvation is of the Lord. He used the proclamation of Jonah to have people's hearts change. Okay, let's keep reading in verse 5. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So externally trying to show remorse, sorrow, brokenness. Verse 7, And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. So not their graven images. Now we're talking about this one true God, the God of Israel. So let's show even externally that we're sorry, that we're repentant, that we've been in the wrong. And let's show devotion to the one true and living God, the God of Israel, the God of Jonah. This is extraordinary. God must be doing something. Oh, remember, Jonah knows. He says salvation belongs to the Lord. And then it says, I think we're halfway through verse 8. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Verse 9, who knows? I have to stop there. Sounds to me like the king of Nineveh knows something about the sovereignty of God. Who knows? And he's about ready to indicate, you know, maybe God is going to show us mercy. I would suggest to you that at that point in time, it looks a lot like the pagan understands the sovereignty of God better than the Israelite understands the sovereignty of God. Fascinatingly enough. Who knows? Verse 9. God may. I love it. It's not God will. He, he, He read the book of James. Lord, Lord willing. No, he didn't really. But, but, he, but he understands like the book of James says, you know, we can make all kinds of plans and we can even seemingly do the right thing. And if the Lord wills, this is what's going to happen. So even here we see such carefulness and sobriety. Who knows? God may turn and not God must or he wouldn't be free. He wouldn't be sovereign. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Then verse 10 says, when God saw that they did, what they did, excuse me, how they turned from their evil evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. 
and he did not do it. And in my margin, what I would write at the very end there, in light of our study that we've been doing on the sovereignty of God, and if you haven't been with us, I'll just bring you up to speed, I would write Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. And the reason I would do that, I'm not saying you need to, but the reason I would is because we've been learning and we have it stated in Ephesians 1.11 that God, the God who has a decree, He has a purpose, a plan that starts before the foundation of the world, before time begins, that God works all things after the counsel of His will. And you say, why would you write that down? I would write that down because... If God, who has a plan and a purpose before the foundation of the world, and it centers on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and He works all things after the counsel of His will, I believe that even the relenting is a part of the plan and purpose and decree. That even God changing His mind is something that God knew that God was going to do before any of this ever even happened. Because... God works all things after the counsel of His plan, His will, His decree. So we're seeing things stated in such a way from our perspective, but it's not like God's like, will they repent or won't they repent? I'm not really sure. Oh, I'll react because I'm better at reacting than anyone else on planet Earth. I think that's unbiblical theology or an unbiblical understanding. He's sovereign and in control. He changed his mind because he decreed that he would change his mind. <laughs> a lot of these things are for our benefit to understand how history is unfolding. But if we believe in the sovereignty of God, he works all of this stuff after the counsel of his will. It's all part of the purpose. And that wraps things up when it comes to us thinking about the sovereignty of God in all things. Jonah loves, loves, loves being delivered by God. He loves, he loves himself some sovereign grace, right? He, he, he wants to praise God. He wants to sing amazing grace all day long. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I will be devoted to you. I will praise you. I will do everything I said in regards to you. Good job, Jonah. Let's join him. But what feels like almost the next breath, I realize there's a little bit more water under the bridge. He hates it. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. If God is sovereign in salvation, and if there's such a thing as sovereign grace, I hate it. Pretty crazy. One helpful Bible commentator put it this way. I thought it was rather striking and helpful. Jonah brought the almighty God. That right there should give us a clue. Jonah brought the almighty God before the bar of justice and proclaimed him guilty. I'm exceedingly displeased with you, God. You're a bad actor. Oh, boy. It's kind of how I think about that. 
but I think it happens today in different ways on different levels. I'm happy when it's for me. I'm happy when it's for people who I want to have it happen to. But if God shows favor to people who I think are unworthy, irony, 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 if you know anything about mirrors spiritually, when he shows it to people who I don't think should receive God's grace and mercy, because I know the bad things they've done, then I judge God for it. Or, or, which is not the case in the book of Jonah, but it would likewise be true, when God withholds his sovereign grace from people, oftentimes we say, that's not right. Let's please remember, salvation belongs to the Lord. I do with my stuff, generally speaking, it's not a perfect analogy, but I do with my stuff, what? Whatever I want to do. It's mine. And you do with your stuff what you want to do with your stuff, generally speaking. But this is a whole other level. The all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign of sovereigns does what he wants to do with his stuff, if you will, including his Salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so if you're wanting to judge God, I I want to encourage you to stop doing that. We don't know if Jonah stopped or not. But I'll encourage you to stop and to learn from Jonah. We should be able to see the clear distinctions. I hope and pray. Again, I've met so many people who when they learn of God's sovereignty in His sovereign grace in effect, say the same thing as Jonah. And they're exceedingly troubled, upset, angry, bitter. If that's the case, I'd rather be dead. Don't be that person by God's grace. I would like to end by having you look at one more passage. And it would relate to this, but it really relates to the other three um, weeks we've been looking at this topic. And I didn't think I, I don't think I've done a good job uh, emphasizing it. And that's Romans 10. So if you would turn to Romans 10, I'd like to use this as our closing for today. It's a classic passage. Lots of you know this passage. Lots of you could finish my sentences here in just a moment. So it's just a reminder, but also maybe some of you haven't thought this through before. So we're, we're really emphasizing sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God. We've been doing it for weeks now. He's free to do whatever it is he wants to do. Uh, we've seen it here in Jonah. Salvation belongs to him. But one thing we need to make sure we understand, and we saw it in the book of Jonah, that God wanted, he desired for the Ninevites to repent. That happened. And God used Jonah's proclamation to bring that about. Not trying to trick you here, but if God didn't want to use Jonah's proclamation and God just wanted to change their hearts, do you think God could do what he wants to do? I think so, right? Now, I know more about the Bible, so I might nuance my answer like some of you are just doing, but let's just all be clear. God should be able to do whatever he wants to do. (laughs) Okay, He's sovereign, does whatever he wants to do. But we also know that God has chosen freely to use human beings to proclaim messages to other human beings. And that's how God has chosen to work in the world. 
He's chosen to use preachers, whether you're formally preaching like I am or you preaching at the water cooler back when we used to go to work um, or, or with a friend or over tears or over whatever it is. God chooses to use human beings to communicate the truth about salvation. And I just want to make sure we understand that. God could say, I'm just going to zap people. But God has made it clear in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, uh, that he doesn't zap people unless you're Ananias and Sapphira. But I digress. <laughs> he doesn't zap people in a good sense for salvation. He uses another human being in, a, in your life to communicate the truth about Jesus so that you can come to believe in the truth about Jesus. And we need to know that. We need to have that be clear in our heads. And I, so I want to read Romans 10. Romans 10, 17 is the classic text. Let's look at that and then we'll back up just a little bit. Romans 10.17, so faith, saving faith in our context, comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. And he's using word of Christ for a synonym for something he said earlier. He calls it the gospel, he calls it the good news. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So God uses people to proclaim the good news about Jesus and if saving faith is going to come as a result of that, it's going to be through that proclamation that it happens. Let's go ahead and read that, the greater context so you can appreciate that. Verse 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the, who, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Great. So you call on him. You, it's another way of saying trusting in him. God save me, knowing that he has the power to. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? The assumption there is you have to know things about this God, otherwise you won't call upon Him. So you have to know about His justice that you're guilty of violating. You have to know about His provision through His Son, who has lived, died, and been raised from the dead on behalf of uh, everyone who would ever believe. So how will they then call on Him whom, whom they have not believed? Well, that assumes if you're going to believe, you have to know what to believe. And how are they to believe in Him? Uh, in him? of whom they have never heard. See, there has to be content. You have to hear something. You have to know something. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news, gospel news, the truth about Christ news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So there's still a need for people to believe. There are some who are not believing. So this is still something we're called to be proclaiming and doing. Then our text, verse 17, so faith, that's faith in Christ, faith in Christ for salvation based upon our context, comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ, hearing through the gospel of Christ, in other words. If you're thinking, that's so obvious, why do you keep emphasizing this? It's because sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we get it in our minds, sovereignty of God, salvation belongs to the Lord, and so, therefore, we don't do evangelism, we don't preach the gospel because we don't need to, because God will just zap them. And that's not biblical. The God who is sovereign has chosen to use human means. The human means are the proclamation of the good news to sinners, from fellow sinners, because faith comes, faith in Christ comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So when 
William Carey. Let's use him because he's a super famous missionary. If you don't know anything about William Carey, read a biography of Carey. It'll encourage you. He went against the grain. He was brave. He did dangerous things. He wasn't perfect, but I'm a big fan of William Carey. He was living in England, and he was burdened to go and take the gospel to people in India who were not Christians. And his denomination in England said, no, we're not going to send you. We're not going to send anyone. We don't need to send anyone because if God wants to save them, God will save them. His denomination had become what we would call, label-wise in history, they'd become hyper-Calvinists. It's one thing to believe in the doctrine of predestination and the doctrine of election because of texts like Acts 13.48. We looked at it last week. All those who were appointed unto eternal life believed. It's one thing to believe that, and we should believe that. God does the saving. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But it's an overstep. It's a hyperstep to say, well, if election and predestination are true, then we don't have to do anything. And now we've taken something that's true, sovereignty of God, and we've not understood it as we should. God uses, God sovereignly uses the proclamation of the gospel to bring about saving faith in the lives of the people who will believe. We just have to keep that in our minds. Okay? We have to keep it in our minds. And carry, thankfully, buck the system, if you will, And today he's known as a famous missionary who believed in predestination and unconditional election and all of the sovereignty stuff we're talking about. But he also believed that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so that that tells us something significant. Remember Romans 9 is sovereignty. And Romans 10 is God God uses human means to bring about saving faith if there's going to be saving faith. Let me ask you this. Is it a guarantee that if you preach the gospel to someone, they're going to believe? Everyone we preach the gospel to is going to believe? Is that true or false? It's not been true in my experience. (laughs) And it wouldn't even be true on biblical grounds. But we preach Christ to everyone. Because faith, if there's going to be saving faith, which is God's prerogative, but if there's going to be saving faith, God will use the hearing of the gospel to bring about saving faith. God has said that's how he does it. And so that's what we would believe. Knowing that all who've been appointed unto eternal life will believe, but we don't know who has and who hasn't until they believe. Until they believe. These things are freeing. These things are emboldening. These things are helpful and the greatest evangelists I can think of have known these things to be true and so they didn't have to resort to manipulation. They weren't passive but they didn't have to resort to tactics that are unbiblical tactics trying to convert people because that's not up to us but God uses our proclamation if he's going to convert anybody to bring about the conversion. That's what we're saying. I should say this just so as to not be confusing. When he says faith comes by hearing, the assumption at the time is not everybody has a Bible. Okay. Faith could come by reading. (laughs) 
right? You, you, you can have a Bible and read your Bible, and before you know it, you've tr- seen the truth about Jesus Christ, and you've come to believe in Him because faith comes by reading, <laughs> because you've heard on the written page, if you will, the truth about Jesus. And that would fit the same spirit of what we're talking about. But generally speaking, God uses people to proclaim the message, the biblical message. Just didn't want to be confusing about that. If you're looking for extra reading, I don't think you need to read anything other than the Bible to have this stuff figured out. Uh, But there is a very helpful book that many of you have benefited from. Uh, It's called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God and how they work together. It's a simple, small little book. It's a classic by now. And so if you're looking for follow-up to motivate you and understand how these things work, I commend that book to you. Um, But we should pray now and be done. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for the life and ministry of Jonah. And what a checkerboard it does seem to be to us. We're thankful to have that historic record so that we can understand how the right response looks and also to understand how a questionable response looks. Uh, Our desire would be that we would be so thankful for what you've done for us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ that we would be eager to tell other people the truth about Christ, uh, knowing full well that you use that proclamation to bring about saving faith as you freely choose to do so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.